Well, however much education that I get, however much I read and study scripture and dig back into the history and language and context, when I think about temptation, one image always leaps ahead of the pack. And it's not a lost wallet with cash spilling out of it. It's not that goat-horned, poker-wielding, red jumpsuit-wearing shoulder demon giving me bad advice. Well, on the other side, there's that adorable, smiling uh, angel sitting there, playing a harp, having a halo, offering the holier choice. It's not that. Try as I might. The first image that comes to mind is of a cartoon little old lady who sets her pie on the windowsill to cool, and that warm, juicy, awesome flavor rides on the wind current to find hungry layabouts nearby. And that tempting smell wakes them up, and it pokes them, and it frogs them, until beyond their own free will, they are floating through the air toward that magic that is fresh-baked pie. I mean, pie is amazing, so we can all really understand this. But I'm not sure that this is an accurate or even a very helpful view of temptation. Sure, sometimes there is a stark moment with a straightforward question. Steal the pie, don't steal the pie. You know what's right, so what do you do? But I think that most of the time, temptation is more subtle than that. It works on us. It breaks us down by degrees, and then slowly over time, if we remember to even notice, we can find ourselves so far from where we ever meant to be. This is a really human problem. We're just not good at being objective about our own sin. I can start out quite piously by saying, forgive me, Lord, sinner that I am, I am the worst person ever the worst person who ever lived, and so I am undeserving of your grace. I think we all have days where we feel at least a little bit like that, but pretty soon we'll have thoughts that disrupt that prayer. Well, I mean, there's Hitler. I'm pretty sure I'm not as bad as Hitler. It's a comforting thought. And there's Bin Laden, Saddam Hussein, Idi Amin, Vlad the Impaler. Those guys were pure evil. You know what? I'm not so bad after all. I mean, compared to those guys, I might be a saint. What am I doing confessing my sins at all? Self-evaluation over A+. Plus. <laughs> it can be really hard to see where we still have work to do. In our gospel reading this morning, Jesus is driven out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan. This might seem like a horrible thing for the Holy Spirit to do, but if we look back to the book of Job in the first chapter, we find Satan being described as one of the citizens of heaven, and he has a really specific job. In Hebrew, Satan means the adversary, because it's his job to act as a prosecuting attorney over our lives. When we say to ourselves, I'm basically a good person, I never do anything wrong, it's Satan's job to say, let it be entered into the record that on the third day of March, 1995, you cheated on your math test. 
Furthermore, you've held 10 grudges, abandoned friends, envied your neighbor's home, and worn white after Labor Day. <laughs> Do you deny it? Not only does the opposing counsel keep score of our wrongdoing, Satan is shown in the book of Job as the one who tempts us in order to prove to God that we are not the good people that we pretend to be. And so, of course, Satan tries to tempt Jesus. In the other Gospels where they tell this story of the temptation, we have a lot more specifics about what Satan thinks will tempt Jesus, turning bread into stone to satisfy his own hunger, or throwing himself from the highest point of the temple to prove how powerful Jesus is, or showing him all the kingdoms of the world so that he can see all the wealth that he could attain. And Jesus, of course, turns all of these temptations down. And even though Mark leaves out all of these details, it's also kind of nice that he leaves it open for us. As the letter of the Hebrews tells us, Jesus is the one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. In the temptation story in Mark, it's like a blank canvas. We can see our temptations in it, and we can see Jesus withstanding all of them. So sure, Jesus can pass the test, but what about us? When we've been kicked around by this world and by circumstances and sometimes our own bad choices, is there a way for us to come back? In our Old Testament reading from Zechariah, we find that Israel has been defeated by the Babylonians and been in exile for 50 years. And the Persians conquered the Babylonians, and so the people could return home. The Persians even gave them money and support to rebuild the temple so that they could freely worship God. And so we come along with the prophet Zechariah on his vision of the high priest Joshua and an angel of the Lord and Satan. Joshua was the chief priest for all of the people. It wasn't just a job title, it was a holy office. Like the Pope is still the Pope when he's eating breakfast and paying his bills, and unless people do that for him. Wherever he went, the high priest would be regarded with the utmost respect and he carried a great responsibility for the people. Now the priesthood was inherited, so most priests would serve a few weeks a year and then return home, but the chief priest stayed in the temple all year long. He was a voice of the people to God, much like the Pope. And they believed that he needed to remain holy and righteous or else God would be unhappy with all of them. Any sin that the high priest committed was considered to fall on all of the people. And once a year, the high priest would enter the holiest part of the temple and make an animal sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. And so, long story short, Joshua needed to be holy and righteous or the people would be lost once more after everything they had suffered from war, starvation, loss of home, exile to a strange country, loss of independence, the people needed good news. And Joshua was probably born in exile, and so he had never seen the first temple. 
He only heard stories from generations past about how things should be, how they used to be, how they might be again. And the Lord has said that Joshua was plucked from the fire. His holy, beautiful, priestly garments were dirty and in disarray. Or maybe the fire they're talking about is, is a metaphor. Maybe it's his own personal chaos and struggle with sin. Either way, he saw himself as unfit, unready to lead the people and to teach them in righteousness. Satan, of course, picked up on this right away and was standing ready to accuse him, ledger in hand, arguments already formulated. But just like the temptation in the Gospel of Mark, Satan doesn't even get to speak. God is not interested in his laundry list of complaints and his attempt to cast Joshua as unworthy. God says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And then the angels take the guilt away from Joshua and the tattered robes and the fear of disgrace. And they clothe him in festival garments, bright and beautiful. God is the one who makes sure that the people have a path to mercy and love and forgiveness. And the angel of the Lord tells Joshua to listen to God's words and follow God's commandments. And there are other priests there as well. And the angel tells them an omen of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant the branch, and I will remove the guilt of this land in a single day. And this prophecy is so beautiful because it speaks to Zechariah's own time, and it speaks to Jesus' time, and it speaks to ours as well. For that moment, Joshua was the branch. We see that confirmed in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. Say to Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, Here is a man whose name is Branch, for he shall branch out in this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. God raised him up to be a branch that could support the twigs of the people of Israel as they became rerooted in their homeland and in their faith. And then we can fast forward to Jesus' life and death and resurrection and see the realization and connect it with that prophecy from Isaiah 11, a shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then we can see ourselves being grafted onto that branch, forever connected to Christ's love and saving grace that removed the guilt of this land in a single day. And as we respond with joy to the forgiveness that comes from God, we will invite each other under our vine and fig tree. And, and really what that's saying is we'll come together as a community in celebration with the fruit of the vine and the love of those who no longer fear guilt. This is an amazing vision of our restoration and of the life to come. And so Hebrews reminds us that the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword 
It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We know that we cannot hide from God. And as the letter said, we are laid naked before the Lord who holds our souls forever. But like Joshua, though we are stripped bare, the angel of the Lord is able to clothe us in glory. And Christ proved himself to be stronger than every temptation and every sin. And so we line up behind him. Even though he was sinless, he perfectly understands the temptations that we face and the difficulty of those tests and trials. As one with God the Father, he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and restore us to wholeness. And so, as Hebrews reminds us, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen.